Good morning and welcome to another episode of An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life, a podcast where we try and work out what it means to live a good life without having any qualifications with which to do so. My name is Adam and with me, as always, is Mr. Nicholas Schmaler. He's a bard, he's a rapper, he lives in Geneva sometimes. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I am very well, thank you, Adam. I have uh, had my first cup of coffee, so... I'm uh, in a good mood. I mean, it is admittedly in the afternoon, but, <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm off to a strong start. I think the morning is is uh, relative to how how recently you got up. It has very little yeah. to do with the time of day. But I'm glad you've had your first cup of coffee. Did you enjoy it? I did. I did. I quite like uh, black coffee with very little sugar in it. Me too. Coffee is indeed the topic of today's episode. Um, so I'm glad that you like it, and I hope that you also like talking about it a little bit more yeah. um what is well, how like are you adam it? oh how am i oh i'm yeah i'm you know how um <laughs> i feel i've had so much coffee that it feels like what would happen if you gave a small puppy speed <laughs> that's not actually true that I, is how i, I think of you yeah. <laughs> i uh i've had one cup of coffee this morning and two um cups of tea um reckless so I've got some, I've got some caffeine in me, and uh, I'm feeling, yeah, fine about that. Fine. Lovely. I believe you wanted to uh, start off by telling us a little bit something about about caffeine, Nick. Yeah, well, actually, I just wanted to, in my usual way, create a smooth segue between uh, last week's episode where we discussed sleep, and uh, this week's episode where we're talking about caffeine. And uh, since we mentioned coffee and what it does to sleep and uh, how it impacts your body generally, I thought it would be nice to start with this quote here, which says uh, simply, it's anonymous, like most of these quotes are on the internet when they're not being attributed to Einstein. Uh, Sleep is a symptom of caffeine deprivation. (laughs) And uh, I think uh, this is... This is just a little reference to, you know, the love that we as humans have for coffee. You know, the coffee bean is one of the most globally traded uh, commodities in the world. So, um, yeah, I believe you have some thoughts on tea as well. And uh, you know a little bit about the history of that. I do. I do know a bit about the history of tea. Um, I, I very much like that that quote about about sleep and about caffeine and you know, in a way, it's it's true. <laughs> Caffeine, will, it'll get you there. It does what you need it to do um, until you need it to stop, in which case it might not go away. T, I, I wrote my... Nick, you, as I, did the uh, International Baccalaureate when we were in high school. We did. Do you have fond memories of it? I have some memories of it. I, likewise, have some memories of it. And as part of the International Baccalaureate, you have to write a 4,000-word extended essay. You're given about a year and a half to do this, so it's not, you know, it's not a huge ask, but um, it felt that way did at you, the time. Did you, did you use a year and a half to write it? I don't know. I used an amount of time to write it. But how long I took isn't important. What is important is that I wrote it about tea, and particularly the effect that the tea trade had on, on the British Empire. Because I liked, I liked the idea that something so seemingly innocuous could have an impact on something as as non innocuous as uh, as empire. Now, in preparation for for today's episode, I did read that essay back, and let me tell you, Nick, don't read, don't 
don't read back your high school. It's not a good essay. It's yeah. it barely it's barely got sentences in it. I don't know how I passed. Does but, this give you some comfort for your current essay writing? No, mm, I mean the current essays I'm writing are better essays than this, but that's a bit like saying that. Mussolini was better than Hitler. Like it's you know it's fairly wow. like low bar. Um, I see. But let's not talk about my current essays right now. Or indeed Hitler. <laughs> or indeed. Or indeed Hitler. <laughs> I think a pretty good tagline for for this podcast would be "Do what Hitler didn't." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're now talking more about Hitler. Let's get back to <laughs> the tea trade. Anyway, tea. Uh, so tea um, originated in in China. And legend says that it was first drunk by, by the legendary emperor uh, Shen Nong in, in around 2,700 years before the Common Era. Now, all tea comes from the leaves of the plant chamomile sienensis. Uh, and if you drink anything that doesn't have that in it but is called a tea, it's actually an infusion. And tea snobs will remind you of this. Now, I see. in China then, as I believe now, green tea uh, was favoured. And the reason that, um, well, I suppose particularly in, in Britain, but to, to an extent other European countries had black tea was because it, it was considered slightly inferior and, the, and, and suitable for export only. Yeah, so black tea leapt into the scene in Europe in a big way, starting in the 17th century. Samuel Pepys, um, friend of yours? Chronicler. Chronicler, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, fr- fr- friend of the show, Samuel Pepys. We send our warmest regards. We send our warmest regards. Right back in his diary, he said, I did send for a cup of tea, a China drink, of which I had never drunk before. We can only assume he, he enjoyed it. And part of the reason it maintained its popularity was due to this thing called the East India Company. What do you know about the East India Company, Nicholas? That every time its name is mentioned, it should be accompanied by ominous music. <laughs> Da, da, da. <laughs> yeah, basically. I know that the East India Company was uh, a process by which uh, traders essentially privatised colonisation of India in particular and uh, mined it for its resources. That is, uh, that's broadly true, but it was also, at least initially, the sort of means by which goods came from Asia to Britain. There was another East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, which was even richer, if you could believe it. In fact, it's, it's the uh, wealthiest company uh, to have ever existed. If it was around today, it would be valued at an estimated $7 trillion. Um, but the British East India Company was pretty powerful too, and brought in a lot of tea from China. And um, at one point, 10% of the income of the, of the British government came from taxation on tea. Now, this obviously cost a lot of silver because Europe didn't really make anything that China wanted. So we were, you know, big, big trade deficit, losing a lot of silver. And the price of silver kept rising, whereas tea remained constant. So we did find something that China wanted. Opium. Lots and lots of opium. Something like 40% of, of China was addicted to opium at one point. The emperor said, this has got to stop. A load of opium was dumped in the ocean. Bing, bang, boom. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. Britain had a war with China to, to, for the right to sell opium, even though this was illegal in the British Empire, so that they could maintain their supply of tea. We've sort of gone off tea, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that tea is sort of a, a, an early example of a globalised product. It, I see. And, and an example of how um, 
commerce interferes with politics and, and uh, you know, wars over goods. It's a very exciting topic. On the other hand, that is sort of tea as an institution. There is also the practice of tea. Now, I have in front of me a book by a man called Kakuzo Okakura, who was, um, I believe, a Japanese immigrant to America and wanted, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, beginning of the 20th century, and wanted to sort of educate Westerners about Eastern tea practices. And so he wrote this book about the philosophy of tea. And I've just got a little quote here from it. The philosophy of tea is not mere aestheticism in the ordinary acceptance of the term, for it expresses conjointly with ethics and religion our whole point of view about man and nature. It is hygiene, for it enforces cleanliness. It is economics, for it shows comfort in simplicity rather than in the complex and costly. It is moral geometry, inasmuch as it defines our sense of proportion to the universe. It represents the true spirit of Eastern democracy by making all its votaries aristocrats in taste. Now, I don't know what the word votaries means, but I think you get the point in that it's particularly the ceremonial aspect of drinking tea, and I suppose the West had their own tea ceremonies, which were rather more decadent. But tea is a social drink. Yeah, I I would certainly associate it with that. I mean, I think particularly it's Eastern associations and the thoughts that I conjure up when I think of tea houses makes me think of something soft and quiet and calming and almost as a moment of meditation but also something which you can gather around with other people so i would definitely say that tea is a social practice in that respect and it's certainly a conversational enhancer definitely definitely um but in terms of talking more about how people might actually experience uh tea as opposed to this sort of rambling history of its entry into the west I haven't even touched upon the famous boston tea party mm. and we won't um, I, I for now you might okay i suppose do you do you drink tea what's its role in in your life nick uh, i have a very casual relationship with tea you know mm. we frequent each other but it's not exclusive i <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. I'm seeing coffee as well. At the moment, more so. Ooh. And uh, yeah, I, I like tea. I've never, I've never really used tea as a habit, shall I say. So it's never been something on which I've relied or have needed on a daily basis. Uh, although under certain circumstances, I'm more prone to it. For instance, when studying. Mm. You tea, tea when studying? That's interesting. Uh, what what sort? Uh, black tea? Uh, yeah, green black tea? tea or green tea if I'm feeling healthy. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird how we associate green tea with, with health. It's the same drink. It's yeah, just some sort of prepared differently. Or detox. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something listeners might know. Green tea, black tea, it's the same. It's just dried, uh, dried in, in a different way. And, mm. and I think a different part of the leaf is used. What's it like for you? I mean, you, you said you had two cups this morning. Yeah, well, so that there's two reasons for that. One is that um, despite my best efforts and my, my sort of uh, philosophy which espouses the, the end of the nation state, I'm sure we'll get to that on another episode. <laughs> I hope not. I am, <laughs> I am still beholden to um, British uh, cultural values and practices. If there are any listeners who don't know, um, Nick and I both both grew up in Switzerland, but I'm, I'm British by birth. I'm a dual national. 
And in British culture... In case you can't cup tell of, by the accent. In case you can't tell... Look, I, you know what? Yeah. Lots of people have English accents yeah. too. Yeah. They're not all from and the Victorian era, but... The, <laughs> no. Well, this is... Okay, as a brief aside... Um, this accent, I only have it because I, I did, didn't grow up in Britain. If I grew up where my parents grew up, I'd talk a bit more like this, you know, sort of like I was in Peaky Blinders. But Solid. I don't, and so I do. Or possibly the other way around. Poetry. Yeah. Anyway, uh, tea is sort of ubiquitous. You have it, you have it like as just to, inter- to like break up the flow of work. You have it um, to relax. You have it when a friend comes over. You have it in a crisis. So it's really hard. There's not really an inappropriate time to drink <laughs> yeah, I was tea. Gonna say. Um, it's it's just often the, walking it's often into the, a new room. <laughs> basically, yeah. It's it is very much and and like. This isn't controversial. I'm not inventing this. This is like the knowledge of this has become a stereotype in itself. That if British people don't know what to do, the first thing they'll do is put the kettle on. Yeah. Put the kettle on and think about it. Right. Yeah. So I do drink a lot of tea, uh, and that's specifically black tea uh, with milk. Um, and people have all sorts of opinions about whether you should put the milk in first, whether you should have sugar, blah blah blah, and that's linked to various um, historical and, and class sort of divides. Um, but really, the reason I, I generally prefer tea when I'm relaxing and coffee when I'm when I'm working. But I've been having more tea than coffee this morning because it has a slightly lower caffeine content, and uh, I. Have been getting jittery in the afternoons. <laughs> Jeez, stop yeah, doing this up? to yourself. It's not necessary. Just <laughs> I like it. Have like though. one you... cup. <laughs> but you like you're doing work and you're like, mm, that was a good sentence. <laughs> and then you want to just finish your. This is a fantastic nice pen. Let me make another cup of tea. Yeah. Also, tea is. Tea is fine, but it's standard, right? You get the same tea bag as hot water, as milk, it's fine. Right, it's like McDonald's. Coffee, like, mm, kind of. Coffee, it's got all these mm, delectable little flavours in it, and you just want to sit in that. Okay, well, before you go down your kind of addiction rant, let me (laughs) give you some facts about coffee. So, yeah, the first fact that I wanted to give you about coffee is that its origin is uncertain. And uh, there are generally some hypotheses for that, but uh, they're educated speculation, shall I say. So the most common legend for it is uh, uh, coffee enthusiasts worldwide. If you're looking for the source of my research, I have been collaborating one-sidedly with the National Coffee Association website of the United States of America, the ncausa.org. I bet that'd be a super cool place to work, actually. <laughs> Everyone just rocks in, they're like, that's that smell of espresso, and they're yeah. like, hey, man, and they like, sit back, and they've got, like, I imagine it takes place in a French cafe. Um, in the USA. Which is, in the USA, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, um... As you mentioned, with tea, different nations have different drinking practices, but uh, perhaps we will get to that. At the moment, mm. we're still in Ethiopia. A few centuries Ooh. ago, not quite uh, the three millennia for which tea, tea has existed, but uh, seven or eight hundred years instead, where a Ethiopian farmer named Kaldi 
witnessed his goats eating the coffee bean and as a result becoming extremely energetic and sleepless. And fascinated by this discovery, he took the beans and goats to the local abbot, who in turn ingested them himself and found that they kept him up at night whilst he was doing his nightly prayers. And uh, news of this then spread through the local religious community and made its way across the region and into the uh, Arabian Peninsula. That's a, sorry, that's a bold move. Like, the, oh, the goats ate this thing and now they're really... I better tell the priest. <laughs> well, I mean... This is clearly the work of Satan. I think, the uh, you know, know, we've debated this before, but maybe there were more mythical eras in time than the one we live in right now. And finding these mysterious brownish beans that your goats eat, which basically... Actually, raw coffee beans are red. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Just edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, went to see the priest, um, spread through the religious community, made its way either across the Red Sea or around it, probably across onto Yemen first, and then all the way through the Arab Peninsula, where by the 16th century, it was cultivated and traded all over. And it was enjoyed in private homes, as well as in public coffee houses, which became uh, really a thriving cultural practice. So to quote the NCA USA, uh, not only did the patrons drink coffee and engage in conversation at these said coffee houses, but they also listened to music, watched performers, played chess, and kept up to date with the news. Coffee houses quickly became such an important center for the exchange of information that they were often referred to as schools of the wise. Now, that's that's very interesting. Um, much much like a modern Starbucks, I think. Yeah, although there's something more simplistic and wholesome about the the, the coffee houses of old. Perhaps I I don't know if you remember from from your visit, Nick, but in uh, in Oxford on Oxford High Street, there are two coffee shops directly opposite each other both of which claim to be the oldest coffee shop in Europe. <laughs> yeah. And one, one claims to have opened in 1650 and the other claims to have opened in 1654. Mm-hmm. And um, it, well, I, I guess mean, that settles I the debate. 1650. Well, <laughs> End no, of conversation. <laughs> Take the I like sign the one down. From six, I like the one from 1654 because not only are they claiming that they're the oldest, they're calling the other ones liars. Yeah. Because <laughs> That's quite a move. Well, we will, get to, yeah. we will get to how they arrived in Europe. Mm. Uh, the, we're still in the Arabian Peninsula. We're still Peninsula. in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, okay. uh, one thing which had been happening from, uh, you know, the 13th, 14th, actually not the 13th, probably the 15th century onwards was uh, the yearly pilgrimage of the Muslims to Mecca, which mm-hmm. was also a thriving coffee hotspot. And the fact that thousands of people flocked there from neighboring regions and then returned with this new knowledge of coffee allowed it to spread even further. And mm. it eventually made its way to Europe, starting with the Mediterranean and uh, primarily Italy, where uh, naturally the dark beverage of the Orientals was viewed somewhat skeptically by some. And uh, indeed, it was referred to as an invention of Satan, so much so that the clergy in Venice in 1615 
tried to have it banned, uh, but only on the Pope's intervention, who happened to be in the area, I guess, uh, and decided in to... Vienna? <laughs> no, 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 Venice. Oh, Venice. Yeah. So yeah, Pope Clement VIII decided to try the coffee for himself and said it was so tasty that uh, it was ridiculous to associate it with the devil and made it perfectly legal. And uh, well, sorry, isn't isn't the whole point of the devil that he offers material pleasures? Isn't that like <laughs> his whole thing? Maybe I mean maybe the Venetians were onto something, but I think I think uh, they thought of it more as devilish through through the eyes of uh, their enemies in the holy wars, mm, you know, right? And and right, their right. beverage, but yeah, uh, people. It eventually made its way to England, uh, where coffee houses started in Oxford, which you may indeed have just been referring to, and mm. they became an interesting source of alternative learning, particularly for students and academics. And they were referred to as penny universities because it cost a penny to get in, uh, have a cup of joe, and uh, this offered you access to conversation and news and the replenishment that coffee offers as a drink and it was so also, coffee shops sorry gone coffee shops had a a cover charge in those days yeah yeah so that's that, that hence the name penny universities ah so that's before you've even bought the coffee i believe so yes wow yeah we should bring that back well yeah but one one, one interesting thing about that is they actually became uh, social equalizers in that sense because uh, a penny was a charge affordable to all and so mm. it allowed society to intermingle along classist lines that were unusual. Very interesting. Yeah, but anyway, so people started swapping uh, the coffee house for the alehouse in search of good conversation and, uh, you know, uh, ed- uh, alternative, alternative edu- education and information. And um, indeed, the English even took the noble step of slowly replacing the beer and wine they drank with their breakfast for coffee. Which um, they found remarkably made them more alert and productive throughout the day. Well, that that's not quite as as perhaps a remarkable move as you might think. I, I actually read about this in a, in a brilliant book uh, called "Sugar Changed the World," which is is a sort of a globalist history of sugar, but of course also includes tea due to its, its role there. And in Europe, prior to that time, people would drink very weak beer or wine all day because there wasn't really a good clean source of water. Absolutely right. So you need the alcohol to kill the, the bacteria. But when you make coffee or tea, you boil the water. So it does that job as well. I don't know why they weren't doing that in the first place, but um, I'm well, sure it did make them more yeah, Hot water is gross, though. You need, <laughs> you need some flavor, however bitter. True. Yeah. Anyway, to, to sort of summarize the uh, history of coffee here, uh, coffee was eventually brought to the New World, uh, again at some point in the second half of the 17th century. And... Uh, uh, did not pick up immediately, but became a more favorable drink of choice when the Boston Tea Party revolted against the tea tax. And so drinking coffee over tea became a symbolic assertion of American independence over that of British colonialism. So Now, now it's interesting you say that because this is one of the more interesting things I, I learned rereading my extended essay which is that that was the official line. That's what your Ben Franklins, your George Washingtons wanted. They <laughs> all wanted of those guys. All of those guys wanted you to drink coffee as a show of American patriotism. But people loved tea. They just didn't want to yeah. pay taxes for it. They bought it from Dutch traders. You know, they, I think they drank more tea in the years following the Boston Tea Party than, than previously. Interesting. Um, 
they just didn't buy it from the British. Well, it makes sense first, that the, the NCA. Line was you, yeah, it makes sense that I got this yeah. from the NCA USA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, to carry on, mm. uh, as uh, coffee spread and increased in popularity, it demands intensified for it to be grown outside of the Arabian Peninsula, and in fact. The Dutch uh, initially tried to uh, plant it in India, but failed, and and then first succeeded in Indonesia, uh, and then Sumatra as well, and sort of started to build some coffee colonies in that region of the world. But then the mayor of New Amsterdam, uh, or, or or New York as it was later to be known ended up giving the king of France, King Louis XIV, in the year 1714, a seedling, which Mm. somehow managed to make its way back to the Royal Botanical Gardens in France, where it it grew into a small plant. And uh, a seedling was then taken from there all the way back to Martinique, which is in the Caribbean mm. Sea, uh, in, you know, sort of Central, Central America. And from there, this tiny little seedling successfully survived this journey and single-handedly birthed basically the whole Central American, South American uh, coffee empire that dominates whole economies even to this day. So quite so, remarkable. That, that's, a, that's an incredible story of globalization. So it went from... From Ethiopia to the Arabian Peninsula yeah, to, to Venice Italy, to England. Like making it all its way to England. And then yeah. from the English to the Americans, Americans to the to French. French. And then, <laughs> to Martinique wow. and all of Central and South America. And what meanwhile, the Dutch were trying to colonize, colonize the other side of the world, the East. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, quite, quite global. And it's amazing how these things can pick up when they, when they cultivate the attention of basically all of humankind. Yeah. So... That, yeah. That's very interesting. So, Nick, we've we've talked a lot about we've talked a lot about history and, and globalization uh, of these drinks. What 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 is the what is the role for coffee in your life, and and how can, does coffee make your life better? Does it make it worse? What do you what do you think about those? Well, I those think uh, you know that there are there are um, differing opinions on that. It remains a controversial drink to an extent, even to this day. And, you know, I, I side uh, uh, very much with uh, Friedrich the Great of Prussia, who mm. in 1777 issued a manifesto claiming beer's superiority over coffee. And he argued that coffee interfered with the country's beer consumption, apparently hoping a royal statement would make Prussians eager for an eye-opening brew each morning. And his statement even proclaimed that his majesty was brought upon, brought upon beer, explaining why he thought breakfast drinking was a good idea. So... Uh, yeah, I, 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 I like coffee and, you know, I, I think it's, uh, uh, so, gone. sorry, you, are you, just to get this right, are you saying that you're abandoning coffee in favour of beer in all circumstances? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just saying that, um, people look for different kinds of mood enhancers and right. that, you know, if, if the, the alert rewiring the coffee offers you as your jam then by all means it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful thing but if you prefer the gentle intoxication of something like beer you know you 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 may find a different use for it although maybe you drink coffee in the morning drink beer at night you know um yeah no i i think what i'm what i'm trying to say though is that um i I do very much appreciate the strength coffee has to offer in terms of productivity. I think it helps me with a lot of things. And indeed, I can draw you to a quote here by Terry Pratchett, 
uh, I know a favorite of yours, who says coffee is a way of stealing time, which should by rights belong to your older self, right? Which is a beautiful way of saying that. I believe uh, we said something similar about alcohol, maybe not on this podcast, but it's borrowing yeah. happiness from, uh, from the future. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, complimentary even. Mm. But I think that, yeah, the, 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 um, the health benefits actually of coffee are quite positive. I mean, I was initially going to try and argue against the use of caffeine, but according to the British Medical Journal, coffee consumption seems generally safe. Uh, they did a study where they investigated its relationship to other health benefits and, and asserted that it, in general, coffee consumption indicates a largest risk reduction for various health outcomes between three to four cups. Um, but any kind of, yeah, but any kind Ooh. of like 400 milligrams is apparently the optimal dosage of caffeine. Um, that's a lot of caffeine. That's a lot of caffeine. Yeah. So they, they that's, that's, um, an initial, an, excuse me, an initial, uh, study, which they probably are going to have to back up, but, um, yeah, that's a lot of caffeine and I might go uh, just, and make myself another cup of coffee. That's <laughs> maybe, great. Maybe you should. However, what I will say is that caffeine can impact sleep. And as we discussed on last week's podcast, the the detriment of sleep is very much the detriment of your own health. And so mm. it can indirectly be a real burden on your health, particularly when it becomes uh, a cycle of dependency where you're not allowing your sleep, yourself to sleep enough and instead using coffee as a coping mechanism, you know, rather than something to enhance a healthy mindset. So I think it depends really on the person and the habits with which you engage in it. But generally and overwhelmingly, I would say, yes, coffee, when used responsibly and in moderation and for the right practices at the right times of the day is uh, is a really wonderful thing. It's kind of like a cheat code. Yeah. And I think more more than that, um, and I agree with the moderation and everything, but coffee is just one of life's great pleasures. Like, does, does, especially if, you, if you're not just doing an instant coffee, if you're like taking the time to brew it properly and watching the colorful and the glass, it's just, it's a, it's really a, I want to taking some time out of your day to make this delicious um, sort of elixir that it, and the tastes are subtle. I'm going to go down a reverie very fast, yeah, but I agree yeah. with you. I think the ship has sailed. So yeah. I think then we're both fascinated by the histories of coffee and tea. Mm-hmm. And uh, we both have a great appreciation for the experience of consuming them as well as the benefits which they offer us, however mm-hmm. real or placebo. And we can therefore conclusively agree that they, they, they do form a crucial element of the good life. Yeah, definitely. Well, first conclusive um, result <laughs> from an unqualified guide to the good life. <laughs> Write this one down, folks. <laughs> drink coffee, drink tea. The only question I have to ask you, Adam, is if you had to pick one, which would it be? Ooh. Um, I think it's got to be coffee. It's too I useful. It's too. It's useful, and I, I, tea I like, but it's. Ba- I basically always have the same cup. There yeah. is a wide variety of tea that I could get more into, and I haven't. But coffee is, uh, yeah, it's a broad <laughs> spectrum. You, of... Yeah, you've got that voice on now. Every time you talk about coffee, you, <laughs> you slip into a different voice. I'm actually a little bit worried. I slip. At, listen, I have this. I have my podcaster persona, and I have my cool coffee enthusiast persona. <laughs> And the less we hear from that persona, the better. <laughs> would you like to see us off to the finish line with a little palate cleanser? I would love to have a little palate cleanser and get just a taste of coffee out of my Okay, mouth. okay, okay. Let's move beyond that. Shall I start? 
Please. Okay, so my uh, palate cleanser this week is that in 1928, the UK... uh, and the United States and Germany signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which agreed to end all war. <laughs> That's it. You're just going to put that there. <laughs> yep. Ended it. And uh, it was a great success, as we noticed. When was that? 1928? 1928. There you have they it. They really did a good job on this one. There you have it. And that was who? Britain? Uh, well, the major powers who, who signed it were um, Britain, Germany, France, the US, Italy, and Japan. But 31 other countries of the League of Nations signed it. Um, and, I mean, I don't think it lasted even yeah. five years for some of these yeah. countries. Italy invaded Ethiopia, Japan invaded China, and then, of course, the Second World War um, yeah. 11 years later. Well, I guess uh, to refer back to an earlier point you made... Uh, the, the League of Nations and uh, the Transparency of Borders is still very much a, uh, a work in progress. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and one that seems to be uh, working in the opposite direction at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, uh, anyway. Anyway, what's your, your little palate cleanser, Nick? Well, I would I'm like bracing to tell myself. you... I, w- <laughs> I would like to tell you about uh, Walter Frederick Morrison. Fred, as I like to call him, and many cool. of his associates did too. Freddie, great. Who, who was born in 1920 in Utah and died in 2010 in Utah and is the inventor who is credited with coming up with the Frisbee. Oh, uh, what a yeah. guy! Which, uh, which, he, which he initially developed by just uh, throwing, throwing like cake lids around with his girlfriend back and forth and sort of just, just being bored, trying to throw things at each other to pass the time, catch them, throw them back. And then he noticed that a particular shape led to uh, a particular uh, style of flying. And he was able to further build on this when he was an American war pilot in Italy in World War II. Um, and he was even shot down and held prisoner for 48 days, which gave him time to ruminate. Uh, on his invention, amongst other things. And um, the, the Frisbee suffered a, a very interesting evolution. And the only thing I want to tell you is the names that the Frisbee had before it was ultimately oh, called a Frisbee. I'm so excited. So initially it was called the Whirlow Way, right? <laughs> okay. After that it was called the Flying Saucer. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the next one before the Frisbee, which is personally my favorite, is the Pluto Platter, which is fun Damn. to say every time you say it. It should have remained a Pluto Platter. It should frankly. have been Platter. So yeah. what you're saying is uh, Ultimate Frisbee is the coolest sport. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so this is actually the fun fact now. Okay. Is that apparently uh, when he died, he was cremated and his ashes were turned into a Frisbee. <laughs> oh, that's so sick. <laughs> so that's his legacy amazing. lives on. Apparently he's flying around some park. Well, maybe not a park, a backyard. Yeah, no, he's probably on the mantelpiece. Your, but... You wouldn't let your dog chase that frisbee, <laughs> would you? Rover, no. give back Randall. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's a functional one, but um, what a legacy. What a legacy. Nick, did you know I was uh, the frisbee team captain when I was in high school? Of course you were, Adam. Of course you were. <laughs> Oh, Nick, that's wonderful. And I'm, for once, very, very happy with that palate cleanser. I feel cleansed. Um, I'm off to have (laughs) another cup of coffee. Thank you so much for podding with me uh, today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will will see you when we speak next, or indeed before that. Yes. Goodbye.